HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history as usual. And today, we're going back to the period of our first president, George Washington, of course. He had a cook whose name was Hercules. That was all he was known by, Hercules. He was an enslaved chef um, throughout Washington's presidency, both terms. And, and that's long been known about him. But and what was really well known in the diplomatic circles was that one would always eat very well at President George Washington's table, thanks to his talents. Stories abound about the fate of this famed cook, but my guest today, author and culinary historian Ramin Ganeshram, has the answers. She recently wrote a book, a novel actually, about Hercules entitled The Generals Cooked, based on historical facts. And through her research, she discovered how he reemerged and created a new life as a free man, embodying the foundational narrative of the United States. Ramin is a veteran journalist, and she's written features for the New York Times and for New York Newsday. She's a celebrated food columnist who's been awarded seven Society of Professional Journalists Awards for her work and an IACP Cookbook of the Year Award. Um, and she's a professionally trained chef and the author of several cookbooks. Ramin has been on our show before talking about her Trinidadian relations and background and coconut and... Uh, what else, Ramin? <laughs> she, she's currently the executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture, where she has worked for more than a decade to unearth this story of Hercules Posey. Welcome, Ramin. Thank you so much. Your book on, on the General's Cook really is a novel, but I mean, it's, it's so enmeshed in all the historical facts that it's almost impossible to separate one. Well, I mean, it's not impossible, but difficult for someone who doesn't know all the ba basic facts, and I certainly didn't, to separate the reality from where you kind of stretched it into fictionalized history a little bit. How did you come to write about Hercules, and, and why a novel? Uh, that's a really good question. So I first learned about Hercules uh, writing a cookbook, a soul food cookbook with Chef Jeff Henderson, 
who is a celebrity chef. And this is going on almost a dozen years ago now. And in writing that cookbook, one of the things we did was reach out into the community to ask people to write essays. And I had learned through actually, you know, my memory's a little hazy, but I think it was Dr. Jessica Harris, who people will know from High on the Hog. At the time I was speaking to her and she said, you know, there's this guy uh, named Adrian Miller who worked in the White House under President Clinton. And he's really fascinated with black chefs of American presidents. So I'd approached Adrian to write an essay for this cookbook, which is called the Pass It Down Cookbook uh, that I was doing with Jeff Henderson. And uh, in interviewing him about this and kind of setting him up to write his essay, he had said to me, well, you know, this predates the White House. And I thought, yeah, well, yeah, of course, James Hemings, you know, it makes sense. Meaning predates when the actual White House was built, this idea of black chefs working there. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Washington had a chef named Hercules who lived with him in Philadelphia in the president's house and cooked the diplomatic dinners. And something, um, I always say that every hair on the back of my neck stood up. I don't know what it was, but I heard that name and I heard those just that line from Adrian. Um, and that was it. I just became completely obsessed and spent the next 12 years um, researching him. And I'm still researching him um, and trying to kind of uncover more truths every day. Well, he certainly from everything I've read in your book. And of course, knowing Adrian Miller, well, he's been on the show so many times. And uh, the, he was this Hercules was a fascinating character for sure. Yes. yes. Very much so. Um, what? Well, he. So here he was cooking. I don't. Do you know how he came about to be cooking for George Washington? I mean, he was his slave first of all, and of course he lived in Philadelphia because Philadelphia at that time was the capital, right? So, do you know how? As I said, how he came about being his cook? Yes. Yeah, so. Essentially, what happened was Hercules was a teenager when he was uh, essentially forfeited to George Washington by a neighbor called John Posey, who had borrowed money from Washington and used Hercules as the mortgage for the loan. And what you have to remember is that enslaved people were considered real property, just like a house, mm -hmm. you know, a wagon, livestock, right? So they could be mortgaged. Um, in, to secure a loan. And John Posey couldn't pay this loan back to Washington. And so he lost Hercules to Washington. At the time, he was um, a teenager. Uh, we believe this because uh, he doesn't show up on the tax records. Again, real property was taxed until he was, generally, you don't show up on these records until you're 16 years old. Um, and so that's when we first see Hercules on the tax records of Mount Vernon. And we believe that he was a ferryman, that he worked for John Posey as uh, running a ferry across the Potomac River. Posey's property was essentially next door to Washington's in the Potomac River. Um, then he was apprenticed to the cooks at Mount Vernon, Dahl and Nathan, uh, where he would have learned his craft. You know, and this is not unfamiliar to those of us who are chefs and guests who are, you know, listeners who are chefs, 
this apprenticeship model where you learn under experienced cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, so we don't, we kind of lose track of Hercules during the revolutionary war, but he's, he's clearly at Mount Vernon, you know, in, in all likelihood, he's certainly not with Washington. Washington had other cooks, enslaved cooks working for him during the war. But when the capital moves from New York City in the era of the first presidency, it was in New York for a year, to Philadelphia, Washington has a problem with the hired cooks that he had been using in New York City at the suggestion of his steward, uh, Samuel Francis. And he basically says to Francis, I don't like this cook. I don't want her to come to Philadelphia. And he sends for Hercules to come up from Mount Vernon. And Francis is actually not thrilled with this idea, you know, but basically Washington wants him to come. And so he does. Interesting that he wasn't thrilled with the idea of going there because he had been living uh, in New York City, correct? Francis is was, in fact, from, well, he was from Barbados, but yes, he was a New Yorker. No, I mean that, that, that at that time, um, oh, no, John Poe, no, uh, I know I was speaking of Hercules. Hercules had been living on John Posey's property. So he had been in back and forth in Virginia and, 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 uh, and Washington. Well, actually he was, by this time he lived at Mount Vernon. So from the time he, he was 16, he lived at Mount Vernon. By the time the, the capital was Philadelphia, Hercules was a man in his forties. He had lived at Mount Vernon for well over 25 years by that time. Mm. Um, and he was at Mount Vernon. Mm. And we have to remember at that time, when we say at that time, it was what, 1793 in the 1790s. Right? Exactly. He came to Philadelphia in 1790 when uh, the capital moved from New York City to Philadelphia. Well, I have to say that um, in reading your novel, which you know I, I read like a history book, but you do such an incredible job with just immersing the reader into the language, the voices, the, you know, the scene around. Um, I was, you know, I, I, as I say, I, I read it, you know, like gospel, meaning that every word was, you know, was actually an historical fact. And, and many of the passages are, as you, as you claim, but there he was in Philadelphia. Well, Let's then he goes to Philadelphia. Right, he's in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about because you 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 just described so many of the wonderful and very heartbreaking and and awful. I mean, it's, you, one never knows enough about what goes on. How, I mean, how did you put together some of these scenes of you know of 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 a life of an enslaved person. It was it was pretty remarkable. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, you make a point which uh, you know I think is a great point. And and the thing about this novel is, I often say that it's eighty five percent true. Um, and mm. the reason is, uh, in order to rebuild these lives, I cast a very broad net to do detailed research. Um, not just about Hercules, who, while there's a fair amount about him in the world, it's still very limited because he was an enslaved person and only enters in the public record in that way, you know, as the property of George Washington. Uh, 
And there's one biographical sketch of him that Washington's step-grandson wrote many, many years later, which is, you know, a gold mine. That's a very rare thing um, to have about an enslaved person. But what I did was I used, um, I actually started with the 1790 census of Philadelphia and uh, the National Park Service in Philadelphia, their archives had done a very good job of separating out African-Americans, free and enslaved, uh, by um, profession. So you'll find that in the book, anybody who is a professional person, an African-American professional person in the book is a real person uh, working at their real profession. Obviously, I fictionalized the encounters with them, um, mm-hmm. but they were real people. Um, and also through the records of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, I was able to read accounts of people who had self-liberated or were rescued from captivity and slavery. Um, and there were great details about the treatment of, the, of these individuals that I could glean from. Obviously, uh, I did a lot of culinary research using um, period recipe books of the day, but also period accounts of kitchens, not necessarily Washington's kitchen, although there was a good deal of that that I was able to 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 get from my colleague, Mary Thompson at Mount Vernon, um, but other colonial kitchens to determine how did they work? What was the function? What were the roles of individual people? Mm. And then it was really about recreating Philadelphia itself. I often say Philadelphia is a character in this book in its own right. It, it really is. It really yeah. is. Um, can you yeah, tell us a little, just bring us, you know, into the whole scene of Philadelphia at that time. I mean, it was a really progressive City. Well, Pennsylvania was a very progressive state in that time in terms of um, abolition, abolitionist uh, rules and and attempts and and laws. Very much so. So the the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania had abolished slavery in 1780 during the Revolutionary War, and what that law said was that if you were an enslaved person in the Commonwealth. For six months, anything above six months, a minute above six months, you were free and you could petition for your freedom. So what this meant was that uh, the majority by the time of this book, this book starts in 1793, you know, but by the time the presidency really begins 1790 in Philadelphia, the majority of the African-American population in Philadelphia is free. It's not a big population. It's about 5% of the total population of the city. But four and a half percent of that five percent were free people of color. And so what you have create, what you have there is a community of people where Hercules and the others enslaved by Washington in the president's house were seeing what a free life could look like, seeing what a community of African Americans um, interacting with each other relatively on their own terms, understanding that larger laws affected them that were based in um, de facto segregation and so on. Um, but really kind of creating a community somewhat on their own terms. And that would have been highly influential to him. But other than that, Pennsylvania was the port where uh, the greatest amount of food commerce was coming into the, into the then United States. And this had been true since the colonial era. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, imports from the Caribbean, from Europe, from other parts of the United States and the colonies at the, at the time, uh, prior to this were flooding 
into the Port of Philadelphia. The markets were renowned uh, throughout the country for their variety and their unusual ingredients. Uh, there were prominent artists working in Philadelphia. There were scientists working in Philadelphia. It was a very dynamic city and uh, a cultural city. So the first um, air balloon liftoff that happened in the United States, the Frenchman who developed air balloons in, in France, he chose the city of Philadelphia to mm. set off from in the 1790s. So it was an exciting place. It was an urban area where so much was going on. I often say that think of Philadelphia in 1793 the way we would think of New York City today or Hong Kong or Singapore or Paris. Um, so this was a really influential and dynamic environment that Hercules was living in. Right, right, indeed. And it's just, it just is amazing the, um, the references in, you know, like that you bring out in the marketplace and, uh, you know, the different people who, as you say, they were employed, they, they were earning money. They had their own, you know, their own livelihood and jobs, which was very unusual at that time. And, uh, and surprising to people who were visitors to, to Philadelphia. Um, a lot of people didn't realize, I would imagine, um, first glance that, Hercules was not a free man. That's very true. He was he was famous in his own time. He was very flamboyant. We know this from the description that, as I said, Washington's step-grandson wrote. His name was George Washington Park Custis. So by Custis's description, we know that he loved fine clothes. Hercules loved to dress up and go out. He had a cane with a gold head that he presumably bought with money he earned selling what was called the slops or the usable leftovers of the Washington kitchen, which was a, a privilege that was granted to him by Washington. Um, he that, had a, that was that in itself was amazing. And that is an actual fact that you brought into the book, correct? Yes, that's an actual fact. Um, that he was able to earn money by selling what describe. So it would have been things like, um, what we would call usable trim, like vegetable trimmings or uh, the offal, in other words, the innards of um, animals that were being, you know, dressed and butchered um, for use, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, excess uh, used uh, leftovers that, you know, never got eaten or might not have been palatable. And these were often used for animal feed. Um, they were used for fertilizer. Um, and so on. So for example, it might have even been the end piece of a Virginia ham that had been smoked at Mount Vernon and sent up uh, by boat from Alexandria. They received regular supplies this way. Um, and that little end piece of grisly fat that might not otherwise be used, certainly in the Washington kitchen, that might be something that Hercules would have sold to somebody uh, who didn't have very much and they would have used that to flavor you know, their stews their own foods. Um, so, and he, and he earned twice what the average American working man at the time, which was a hundred dollars a year. Um, Hercules earned $200 a year doing this with Washington's permission. And there was obviously some concern that he might not, uh, continue to stay in the, in the enslavement and employ of Washington. I mean, how, how did that work out? 
Yeah, so so Washington was uh, always afraid that the individuals whom he was holding in captivity, he was enslaving in Philadelphia, were going to uh, self-liberate, or as he would have thought about it, escape, right? He was worried that they were going to take advantage of the law, that the gradual abolition law. And so what Washington did was he rotated people out of the capital. He took... Uh, you know, Hercules and Ona Judge, which is a name people may have heard, and Austin mm-hmm. and, and Maul and Joe. And he would take them on trips, either ideally for him back to Virginia or in a pinch over to New Jersey, which was a slave state, um, to reset their time in the capital so the six months would never really come to pass. And they were advised to do this actually by the Attorney General of the United States, their friend. Mm-hmm. William Randolph. Mm. So Washington was always afraid of this. Uh, Hercules was incredibly well known. He moved about the city at the end of a work night. He was uh, allowed to go out as long as he, you know, obviously came back. Um, and so he had a great concern that Hercules not only had the wherewithal, but that he had friends in the city, in this vast network of people that he certainly would have cultivated to hide him to help him get away. Hmm. Although Hercules had family back in at Mount Vernon. He did. He hmm. had three, possibly four, but we th- but certainly three children um, back at Mount Vernon. And it's an interesting question because people often ask me about this idea of, you know, did that hold him or did he think about that uh, when he ultimately self-emancipated? Um, of course, we can't know what he thought, but we can sort of build some probable suppositions based on the history. Um, a lot of this, um, well, the history in your research, um, I just is interesting because it also, as you said, you also use a lot of culinary texts. So it is about food as well, because that way you could know what Hercules was doing, what he was, you know thinking in the food sense, you know, and, and preparing. You even include recipes in your book from that period. Tell me a little about that. Yes. Yeah, so the thing, um, you know, when we think about Hercules, uh, and again, going back to the Custis description, Custis is very clear that he is a demanding and exacting chef. I often joke around and say he was the Gordon Ramsay of his time. He did <laughs> not tolerate any nonsense in his kitchen. And I really want to be clear um, for people to understand that the staff that he was managing in this kitchen and he expected the best of were white. They were paid white servants or white indentured servants that he managed as an enslaved head chef, which is quite, quite remarkable. Um, and that he took great pride in his, in his ability to prepare food at a very high level. That's why food is so important to this book. I mean, it was his identity. The skillful artistry was his identity. Um, we don't know exactly what he, what he was cooking on a daily basis. We don't have records of that. But we do know the things that Washington regularly ate. We do know what was served at the diplomatic tables because of letters from other people to, you know, to their associates, for example, John Adams. Um, so we do know the kinds of things that were there. And there are a wealth of period recipes around these things. 
Um, so I recreated recipes for the modern table um, for these very common dishes that certainly Hercules would have co- cooked and put it in the second edition, the paperback edition of the book, mm. because actually readers were asking for that. They were saying, is there a way that you can provide recipes for things that Hercules might have made? Uh, can you give us an example of just a couple of, of the types of, of recipes of the food? Yes. I would say, well, salmagundi was one of the first ones that I saw listed. Yeah, um, salmagundi, which is a composed salad, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyone who ever gets what we like to call in a you know, modern day, a big salad with a protein on it, um, it's really a salmagundi. And it's eaten... Um, you know, for, for hundreds of years, in fact. Um, I should say that all the recipes that are in the book are recipes that he prepares in the book. Um, so when you read the recipes, they refer back to scenes in the book um, that, that he's preparing. Another one is a chocolate tort or chocolate cream pie, uh, something that was, you know, commonly made uh, in wealthier homes. We don't often think of it that way, but in fact, it was. Um, some another dish is the Shrewsbury biscuit. It's okay. essentially a shortbread cookie that has mm-hmm. um, caraway as a seasoning, which is a little bit unusual for our modern Interesting. taste. Interesting, yeah, right. We think of it more as a savory, exactly flavoring, right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that the food is, um, you know, it's. I don't want to say simple, but it's think there are things that have become part of our you know, our known repertoire, I guess, if you will, or at least our, it's in our, our canon of, you know, of, of recipes that a lot of cooks will recognize. But we're going to talk more about this food when we come back after a short break and about the fate of Hercules. So stay tuned. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's Program Manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the President and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship. We are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, There's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. Hi, we're back, and I am talking with Ramin Ganeshram, and we're talking about the general's cook, Hercules. Hercules, who has a last name, Hercules Posey. But of course, now we know it's the last name of his initial owner. Um, You, as you said, you continued, after you finished the book, you continued your research. What, okay, what, and you said you're still researching. What drives you on further? Well, you know, it always bothered me that he was, 
we thought lost to history. And um, I was always kind of here and there continuing to look for him. Um, the, the life of the enslaved in the late 18th century, particularly cooks, is something that at large I continue to research in my, in my job. So he was never far from my thoughts. Um, when there's a portrait on the cover of my book that for a very long time was thought to be Hercules. In fact, the title was A Portrait of George Washington's Cook. And it hung in a museum in Spain. It hangs in a museum in Spain. And it was thought to be by Gilbert Stewart. Uh, it wasn't until uh, 2018 uh, or a little bit earlier that it came to Mount Vernon as part of their excellent exhibit called Lives Bound Together about the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. And it was finally authenticated and determined neither to be Hercules nor to be a Gilbert Stewart painting. And you know, in fact, I actually always knew that. A colleague of mine had called to tell me, and I said, yeah, I know it's not him. And they said, well, how do you know? And I said, because the hat that this gentleman is wearing is, you know, people think it's a chef's toque, but the chef's toque didn't come to America until the 1820s. And this is a late 18th century portrait. So it was determined to be that it was a depiction of a free person of color in the Caribbean, of the 18th century. And I know being half Caribbean, being half Trinidadian, that the fact that he's wearing all white means that he was an important person in the community, in the religious community. So I started to uh, dig around. I thought, is it possible that it is Hercules, that the title wasn't a made up thing, that he moved to the Caribbean, or that his parents were West Indian. And once he was free, um, he had himself painted in this garb. So I asked a genealogy with a genealogist with whom I worked, could she help me determine, do a little bit more digging to find his forebears? And uh, she had asked me what his surname was. And I kind of laughed. I said, you know, he didn't have a surname. <laughs> and she said, well, what was the name of his previous enslaver? And I said, well, it was Posey, but you know, if you use that, there's a few of us who've been doing this work for a long time. We would know, you know, very cocky. And uh, she said, well, I'm going to look. And she found him. And she found him buried in New York City at the Second African Burying Ground. Um, oh. And through a number of other steps, we determined that, in fact, it was indeed him. Um, just kind of process of elimination of a lot of things, mm -hmm. uh, including finding him in the New York City directories as a cook. And so we brought our findings to Mount Vernon and, and they agreed that in fact it was Hercules Posey, which is the name that he used for himself. Wow. That, that's pretty incredible. I mean, that the fact that he had a, a profession or, or if you will, in his state, you know, a vocation, something that identified him even further that certainly, you know, cooking, helped you find, you know, track him down even further. Right. Completely. Yeah. Well, I had wondered about that because the photo, it's something that, you know, we, many of us have seen around a lot. Um, and in fact, Adrian Miller used it for the cover of his book, right. uh, the president's cabinet. Um, and, and we had talked about it, you know, it was like he's uh, presumed or assumed, you know, that it was Hercules. Um, but that's, uh, that's fascinating. I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, so as we kind of finish up and go into our last phase here, 
what tell me is that do you know anything about his life when he or well about his first of all his emancipation and how that came about yes so his emancipation is also very much an incredible story so in the summer of 1796 the washingtons returned to mount vernon from philadelphia as they did uh, every year to spend at least a month of the summer there and so you can imagine for hercules having to come to mount vernon and be basically sequestered on this farm and you know very little access to the outside world when he was used to you know walking around the streets of philadelphia uh very much on his own accord in the in the evenings for example it must have been very oppressive to him and at the end of this period of time of the summer Washington, as we mentioned before, always paranoid that the people he enslaved were looking to to uh, gain their own freedoms to self emancipate. Um, he had there was an incident when a white servant had money stolen out of his saddlebags of his horse, and Washington believed it was Hercules's son, his eldest child Richmond, who stole that money and was planning to escape with his father. And so he forced Hercules to remain at Mount Vernon while the rest of them went back to Philadelphia. Um, it was clearly a punishment. It was clearly meant to prevent him from taking advantage of being in Philadelphia to, to self-emancipate. Uh, what you have to understand is that this was the end of Washington's last term as president. You know, by the following, uh, you know, sp- uh, summer, uh, he intended to give up the presidency and come back to Mount Vernon. So time was of the essence. He wanted to remove Hercules from Philadelphia, from which he could leave more easily. Um, so Hercules is there. And uh, when they all return in September, and about five months later, on Washington's birthday, when the enslaved community has been given uh, some rum and extra rations specifically to toast Washington, who was in Philadelphia celebrating his 65th birthday. And Washington was so famous in his own lifetime as well that the nation celebrated his birthday, even when he was General Washington during the war. So mm-hmm. there were balls and there were festivities. And so while Washington is essentially partying in Philadelphia for his birthday, and uh, individuals are, you know, toasting him and focused on having a little moment of respite as a celebration of his birthday at Mount Vernon. Hercules walks off the plantation and is never seen again on Washington's birthday in 1797. And he's only seen once more until we found him by Mayor Varick, the mayor of New York City, who was one of Washington's aide-de-camp. Uh, during the Revolutionary War. By this time, Washington has passed away. He died in 1799. He writes to Martha and he says, I've seen your cook. Would you like me to apprehend him? And so uh, she says, no, no, I have found a white cook who answers just as well. You don't need to capture Hercules, who um, is, of course, now free by his own self-emancipation, mm-hmm. free because at one point he did spend more than six months in Philadelphia and free because Washington had freed his enslaved people in his will upon Martha's death. But she went ahead and freed them right away because she was afraid that it would be uh, too tempting for someone to take her life to gain their freedom. So she knew she couldn't get him back, but she was kind of uh, playing it off as if it were her choice. Um, So that's how we knew he was in New York City, at least by 1801. 
We've come to find out he was there the whole time. So you had a starting point at least, right? Yes. <laughs> All right. Fascinating, fascinating story and um, uh, not a happy story by all means. But, um, and as far as the food goes, it was, it's such, um, you know, such a food story as well. I mean, that it all came about because of his talent at, at cooking. As I mentioned at the top of the show, people knew they were going to go to the Washington's uh, to General Washington's house or president at the time and eat very well. I mean, he his food was recognized far and wide by the it, diplomats. Absolutely recognized. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, is there is there something, is there anything, one thing in particular that you would say he contributed to uh, the food and cooking of that period or of, of our time, you know? Or maybe of the of the diplomatic cooking. Exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know when we think about famous chefs, right? We think about, for example, Jefferson's chef uh, James Hemings. James Hemings. And people often talk about, you know, it was James Hemings who brought macaroni and cheese uh, from France to the United States. That's what he contributed, among many things, to American cuisine, creme brulee as well. And that's true. We don't have recipes like that from Hercules, but what Hercules did was create the idea of the diplomatic dinner, the idea that, you know, food and very fine quality food uh, spoke to the status of the nation. Yes, this was a young nation. It was a fledgling nation, but it wasn't a backwards nation. There was an elegant table set um, at, you know, uh, with their leaders at the head of these tables. And they discussed matters of import over this elegant food. And, you know, I believe... But he created a standard that every presidential chef had to live up to, even to this day, um, around this idea of this bountiful hospitality uh, prepared well. Uh, the American table, the president's table to this day is a way to showcase everything we have in this country in terms of ingredients, um, in terms of variety, in terms of mixing the old uh, you know, Hercules cooked in a continental or rather in an English cuisine that had continental influences using American ingredients. Um, and we do this today, except that we have a much wider world to draw from in our experience. I think that the idea of diplomatic dining in America uh, is fully credited to this man. That's 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 I would agree with you. That's 100 percent correct. The only time we lost that, obviously, was during Roosevelt's um period, Franklin Roosevelt's period, but <laughs> um, due to his wife's uh, theories on, uh, you know, we should, you know, we should show restraint during these right. times, but, that's um, right. yeah, <laughs> but um, it would, that's, it's, it's, again, it's just so amazing how, you know, food ties all this history together. And uh, I think I can see why you became so fascinated by, by this man. And, by the whole history of it, for many different reasons too, but but this was I I applaud your uh, your persistence in in digging to find as much information as you could. And the book is as much history as it is just you know like a uh, an interesting read. It it's it is very much a, an entertaining read as well. And again, it's called the General's Cook. And the author, my guest, is Ramin Ganeshram. 
And it's all about President Washington, General Washington's cook, Hercules Posey, as we now know his last name. You could say his last name, right? So thank you so much for sharing your time and your information with us, Ramin. And I wish you good luck in the rest of your research. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Again, this has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.